drawing close to Marga Puja, the full moon in February. It's a day often referred to as Sangha Day. When Lumpur Cha was alive and teaching, it would be a day that all his disciples would come together at Wat Bapong. In the time of the Buddha, it was that day when the 1250 awakened disciples of the Buddha came together unannounced, unplanned. Lumpur Cha used to say that now the Buddha is no longer with us. The Dhamma and the Vinaya are our teachers. They, they are still with us. So the flavor of his teachings are always promoting that, promoting the search for truth, the Dhamma, but upholding the practice of the Vinaya as the vessel that helps us to reach the truth, preserve the truth. and not allowing one to take over from the other, and not neglecting the Vinaya for the Dhamma, or not neglecting the Dhamma for the Vinaya. And they work together, hand in hand. Sometimes people would come to the monastery and be in search of Lumpur Cha's meditation technique because they'd practiced at different meditation centers or with different teachers who emphasized a particular technique. <coughs> They wanted to know what Lumpur Cha's technique was. So he might answer, well, the technique of practice here is Dhamma Vinaya. Or if they were trying to tie him down to particular details of the practice of meditation, he might answer more generally and say, everything is bhavana or meditation. <coughs> All parts of our lifestyle in the monastery are concerned with the training of the mind, the cultivation of the heart, the qualities, the skills that we're developing. When we sit meditation, we're also developing when we're walking around, when we're eating, when we're doing chores, when we're chanting, and so on. And we're constantly 
in a process of training. And he encouraged us not to get too fixed about the practice or tied down to technique because then we can neglect the practice at times when we're not sitting meditation or walking meditation or at times when we're not on retreat. So everything is part of the practice. Everything is part of the practice of meditation and the development of the mind. Another thing he would say is that just as it's easy to build a meditation hall, but difficult to maintain it, look after it and clean it, <coughs> it's easy for a person to go through the ordination procedure and become a bhikkhu. But it's difficult to stay a bhikkhu and deepen one's understanding of the practice. It requires constant effort. In a way, you could say we ordain or go through the ordination every day. Every day that we wake up, we're committing to another day of practicing as a bhikkhu. So committing to the Vinaya, committing to training the heart, developing the Eightfold Noble Path, Sila, Samadhi, Panya. It can be one useful reflection just to keep coming back to the purpose of ordination, the purpose of living in a monastery, refreshing that intention to, to train and to understand the truth to free ourselves from suffering. Like anything in life, if you commit to the lifestyle of a samana, of a bhikkhu, then that commitment will be tested from time to time. Sometimes, through our own internal doubts, confusion, or sometimes through physical obstacles that arise, like illness or physical conditions we experience. Sometimes we're tested in our commitment by external conditions, family ties, or past responsibilities towards other people, or even occasionally towards work or duties in society. And that's quite normal to be tested, and often we learn from that. That's where we learn. So when you're tested, it forces you to go back to why, why you ordained what the purpose of it is, to refresh that in your mind <clears throat> and to learn how to 
practice with whatever arises, whether it's internal, uh, strong emotional states, suffering or doubts, or external problems that may arise. Learning to live with other people, keep the vinaya in different situations, train the mind in different situations. You know, whatever the obstacle is, these are the places we learn. But when we keep renewing our commitment to the practice, reminding ourselves why we're doing it, you know, that from that we get a source of faith. Perhaps we remind ourselves about some of the ways we were thinking when we were a layperson leading up to when we ordained. Often we had some taste of the suffering of life. We're aware of the fickle, the uncertain nature of our own mind, never quite reliable, sometimes happy, sometimes angry, sometimes sad, fed up, bored, sometimes uh, aware of the problems of earning a living, living in the world, relationship problems, family problems, whatever the different reasons and insights we had as a lay person that were leading us towards the monk's life. It's good to remind ourselves of that. And this brings up that commitment and some faith. So for myself, just knowing that the monk's life was available brought great joy to the heart because I'd actually considered it and then thought it's probably not possible anymore in the world. But once I realized it's still a, a lifestyle that's available and available to anyone, not just to a certain group of people, that brought great joy that the Dhamma, the Vinaya, can still be practiced in this day and age. And the opportunity to really understand what the Buddha taught and find peace is there. And this is an important part of our practices, <clears throat> regenerating faith in the teachings, in the way of practice. Because from that we get some joy and happiness because we can see that the potential for growth in the Dhamma and the potential for overcoming suffering is there, even if we haven't yet reached it. This brings us a lot of joy. Sometimes we call that pasata. Uh, Sata pasata. Faith, confidence in the teachings, and then this brightening of the mind. Just the thought that we can practice, we can overcome suffering, and the Buddha has laid out the path of practice. The Dhamma, the Vinaya is there for us to follow. Brings up this brightness, happiness, if only temporarily in the mind. For many people that's their first experience of peace in meditation. It's just the joy of recollecting the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, thinking about the, the practice, even if 
haven't attained deep insight, but just seeing the possibility of insight and letting go of the causes of suffering, craving, attachment, brings the mind to a sense of peace, brightness, happiness. From there that you, you build on that. It may only occur from time to time when the conditions are right in your mind. Say like when you hear a Dhamma talk or sometimes go and visit a Dhamma teacher or talk about the Dhamma or sometimes just remembering some aspect of the Dhamma from your own life or from what you've heard. It seems to trigger the arising of faith and this brightens the mind, brings a sense of joy and peace. From time to time we experience that and we can build on that. It's when the mind is going to a slightly more refined, more subtle level of peace. So the arising of wholesome dhammas based on maybe hearing the dhamma or reflecting on the dhamma. It might not last long, but it's a taste of the happiness that will come if we keep practicing. So we have to trust in the in the practice that that experience will become more profound as we go along. And particularly if you ordain for many years, then the opportunities for reflecting back on different aspects of the practice, the path, or reflecting on the teachers you've known and lived with, reflecting on the Buddha, that becomes more, you become more skilled at doing it. And so it's a constant source of faith and the ability to brighten the mind, even if you're dealing with a particular personal problem, illness or anger or anxiety about something. You've got something you can return to over and over again and brighten the mind. And some teachers talk about the importance of seeing that you know, the wholesome dhammas that we develop, beginning with faith, sata and pasata, you know, these, these illuminate the mind like a light switch turning on. Whereas the worldly dhammas rooted in greed, hatred, delusion, they darken the mind. Even that can be a reflection sometimes when you pause and you observe your state of mind from day to day. Just ask yourself, how, how bright is the mind at the moment or how dark is it? And if it's dark, then how can you brighten it? What reflections, what practices, what actions will brighten the mind or bring a brightness to it? And that's the direction we're going. There's probably not a single monk who ever ordained with perfectly bright mind from day one, just sustained indefinitely. You know, we all start from place of our own past karma and some of that will have generated craving and attachment 
And so we're working through that as we practice. We have moments when the mind is brighter, seems purer, the Dhamma, closer to the Dhamma, <coughs> the mind becomes more radiant. But then we have other periods where it seems to darken again. We get caught up and end up in confusion or suffering of one kind or another. But the more we practice, the more in touch with our own mind we become. So the more we see or are sensitive to the level of our mind, how bright and wholesome it may be or how dark and unwholesome it has become. That's a warning when we get caught into more darker states of anger, greed or lust or attachment for more worldly things. It's a warning that maybe we're going in the wrong direction in our practice. We have to pull ourselves back, come back to our original commitment to to the practice, back to the Dhamma, back to the Vinaya. Physically speaking, they say, as you practice, well, you're constantly, the effects of your practice are not only affecting your mind, but affecting your your brain, your body as well. Uh, as we hear many people say now, you're, the practice of developing the path, see? keeping precepts, keeping yourself out of trouble, living in a virtuous way, developing mindfulness, developing kindness, compassion, all these more wholesome, positive qualities of mind, they seem to have a, an effect on the, on the body as well. So the immune system is boosted through the practice of, particularly of meditation, but also generosity, goodwill. And then even the neural pathways, the way the brain is changing, developing, is affected by the practice. This is one way, you might say, why it becomes easier to practice, because you get develop good habits, and those good habits, skillful habits of mind, body, speech and mind, become easier to bring up and sustain because of practice. One thing Lumpur Cha used to encourage was, you know, whatever you're doing in the monastery, really do it fully, wholeheartedly, you know, whether it's your actual sitting or walking meditation, you know, really put your heart into it. Or whether it's cleaning your kuti, putting on your robes, eating your meal, washing the bowl, sweeping, doing chores, chanting, Whatever aspect of the practice we're doing, really put your heart into it. That way you are bringing up some of these wholesome qualities. You bring a certain vigor to what you're doing, a certain commitment. This will help to overcome some of the more negative conditioning we have. It's quite natural if we do certain things repetitively over time, like chores of cleaning or going, taking our bowl, receiving food on arms round, eating the meal, meditation, chanting, different things that we do over and over again regularly. 
it's quite natural that sometimes we'll become more dull, more distracted as we do those things. Some get into the habit of bringing attention to whatever you're doing through the day. As Lumpur Cha said, everything is meditation. <clears throat> Often we, we read the, the Dhamma talks or hear the talks about perhaps development of more refined states of samadhi or deeper states of insight, letting go of our attachment to self. But in practical terms, often these very ordinary experiences in the monastery are also places where you're letting go of self. The practice begins with a certain sense of sacrifice. When you come into the robes, you're sacrificing, say, some of your worldly possessions, family and friends, worldly happiness, or your opportunity to obtain worldly happiness. You're sacrificing that to come and live in the monastery in simplicity. You you no longer have money or possessions of more than a few robes and a bowl. That's a sacrifice. And then when you come into the monastery, you're living here, you know, there's work, there's responsibilities and duties to perform. These involve a certain sacrifice of one's personal time, energy, for the good of everyone. But when done wholeheartedly as part of the practice with the idea of this is part of the meditation, then it's also a time of letting go of self. Just the same way that you're in a deep state of samadhi, contemplating the khandhas, the vaitana, the sanya, the sankhara, and so on. Just as we might say that is contemplating to abandon the attachment to self, or similarly turning up to a, a meeting, meditating, chanting, putting one's effort into the chanting, doing a chore, completing that chore with mindfulness, with effort. This is also letting go of self. It's part of the practice of the development of samadhi. If you look at the Eightfold Path, the samadhi section involves right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi. If you're doing a mundane task that you might think is really not that much to do with meditation, but then you're developing mindfulness and the effort to abandon, say, laziness or irritability of mind at that time, then you're practicing right effort, you're bringing up mindfulness. This would equally be a cause for the arising of states of samadhi as actually sitting, watching your breath or walking meditation. Part of what we're learning is how to develop wholesome, skillful attitudes which again brighten the mind. It's quite possible for factors of samadhi to arise when you're sweeping leaves. If that action is done with faith, with effort, with mindfulness, then pity and sukha can arise just the same as when you're sitting meditation. And you notice sometimes if the attitude is right, then the mundane task, you might actually become more peaceful than when you're sitting meditation or walking meditation but with a lot of self striving but with a lot of desire for results or or a lot of aversion towards anything that you feel as a distraction or obstruction or a disturbance 
Sometimes it's even possible that you're more peaceful doing an ordinary task than when you're meditating. In that sense, you know, everything is, is a meditation. Everything is an opportunity to develop mindfulness, effort, bring up faith, brighten the mind, bring up wholesome dhammas, and develop insight. As we do chores, we're reflecting on an ichadukha anatara just as much as when we're sitting meditation or walking meditation. The opportunity for wisdom to arise is always there. The more you practice, or the longer you practice, probably the more you understand this, but there's also the danger of becoming kind of complacent in the practice losing, again losing that original sense of commitment and the original interest and uh, energy for the for the practice, for deepening one's understanding, that can fade. So every day we can practice coming back to, say, the reason why we ordained, coming back to restoring or refreshing our faith in the practice and then putting it in effort into developing mindfulness, doing things, what we, whatever we do, try to do well, and try to do as a practice. Whether it's having a cup of tea, vacuuming a floor, walking to your kuti, chanting, everything can become part of the practice. At Wobbapong, when I was a young monk, you know, people used to sometimes, the Western monks used to complain that there was so much bowing. You have to bow all the time, coming into the sala, leaving, into the eating hall, leaving, going to Kuti, leaving, meeting another monk who's more senior, going to meet the teacher, and so on, always bowing. Well, Lumpo Chao pointed out, you know, again, it's a way to practice literally to pause body and mind for a moment to bring up awareness, reflect on the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, cut through trains of thought, cut through daydreams, remind you where you are, what you're doing, bring up Sati Sambhajanya. Sometimes, Lumpur Chah said, sometimes if you're bowing fully with full awareness, then it might even bring tears to your eyes, just that tears of gratitude, thinking of the Buddha, thinking of your teacher, thinking of the lay people and the opportunity you've had to practice as a samana, as a bhikkhu. In this day and age, you know, it's, if you look at the world as a whole, it's amazing that it's still possible to live and be supported in this way. The world is such a net of views, so many different views on what is right and wrong, what is the best way to live, what's important, what's not important, that there are still people willing to support bhikkhus. It's quite amazing. Our society has become very materialistic and sort of very superficial. People now are more interested in just being well-known, being a celebrity, getting money, traveling, fashion, all these kind of things. 
are often associated with happiness, a very sort of superficial, material kind of happiness. It's not very fashionable at all to go and live in a forest with no money, no possessions, dedicated to the Dhamma Vinaya. It's not at all high on people's priorities in the world. So the fact that we can still do this is a great blessing for us. It's our good fortune. And we can also, out of gratitude, carry on practicing as a blessing back to the lay people who do support us. Talking to Venerable Panyasiri in Mount Pleasant, South Australia, about Bindabhata, he was saying at first he felt he should talk to everyone who approached him and offered food, maybe even give them some Dhamma. Then he realized you know, a lot of people, they don't yet know about the Dhamma, maybe it's not appropriate. And he started to realize the main thing is that just seeing a Samana, even without a word being spoken, just seeing somebody practicing the holy life dressed in a robe with a shaven head mindfully, peacefully standing on a street is enough much of our practice we don't have to herald to the world we don't have to make announcements to the world or teach or do anything special other than just practice follow the routines keep the vinaya keep the rules, meditate, develop mindfulness. You know, everything is already a blessing to the world in what we're doing, if we're doing it with the right attitude, with faith and in a, with a good, good attitude. Sometimes we feel guilty or we feel we should be doing more. And of course, there is more that we can do, but it's also enough just to live this life, to keep the rules, look after our requisites, appreciate the lay people who look after us, be grateful not to be a burden on them. These are kind of wholesome reflections that every day we can bring up, brighten the mind. The longer you are in the robes, well, the more experience, more knowledge you have, you may be able to share that with others, give teachings in different ways, lead others in the practice. But just to be a samana practicing as we do is already good enough. Another thing that Lumpucha used to emphasize for the Sangha as a whole is not to be a burden on the world. Already we're dealing with the burden of our own five candors, this body, this mind that we identify with so strongly and that causes us so much suffering. You're not to project or bring that suffering out to the rest of the world because already we have the heavy feeling of dealing with an, a mind that's not yet tamed it's still full of attachments and desires and emotions that bring us stress and suffering we're already dealing with that so then to take it out on the world and bring it to the world it just adds to our problems so as monks, we're learning to be restrained, content with what we've got. So we learn not to burden the laity, not to ask 
from lay people. You know, if someone gives you an invitation, even if you need something, really think, do I really need this? Do I really need to bother that person? Because everything we do is still karma, and sometimes we can forget that. We try to get by with what we can. Enough food, enough robes just to get by, to protect us from the weather, from illness, is good enough. We don't have to have the most perfect conditions. Well, again, that's the way of the world, isn't it? The world is full of ideals. <clears throat> People are always trying to get the perfect thing, the perfect place, the perfect partner, the perfect situation. But we know the danger or the harm in that. You know, the mind can endlessly create ideals of how things should be. And monks can do this as well. You apply that to how our meditation should be, how our, how the monastery should be, how things should be run, how things should be. In every aspect we can get caught into that. But reflect on it. It's enough. If we have support, we have a place to stay, we have our robes, there may be improvements that can be made, but at the same time we have to reflect it's good enough. If we have that reflection, then it's like an instant sense of calm, the happiness to the mind. It's good enough. It's good enough to have the opportunity to meditate every day good enough to be staying in a place that's peaceful without many anyone giving us a hard time even if you know there are difficulties obstacles sometimes it's the weather sometimes our health sometimes we have some emergency you know, some work has to be done to solve a problem but generally speaking it's good enough we have access to all the teachings more than ever, you know, through the development of technology, we can listen to Dhamma talks from innumerable meditation masters in different languages. You have all the books, all the PDF files and so on. And we can travel. We have the opportunity sometimes to travel, visit other teachers miles away in other countries. Everything is there. But we have to make that conscious in our mind that all the facts, supportive factors that we need are there in place already. And the quality of the teachings is there. You know, the Dhamma Vinaya hasn't become out of date. Human beings still have the same makeup of the five candors since the time of the Buddha. So all the teachings of the Buddha gave are still totally relevant to us today as they were in the time of the Buddha. And we have good examples. Some have passed away, but some are still living. Of those who have practiced, realized the Dhamma, shared their realizations with us. So the flavor of the Dhamma and the Vinaya is always one of coming back to letting go of self or a more selfish, unwholesome desires, sacrificing 
for the Dhamma, for the Vinaya, sacrificing our more worldly desires, our more negative desires, or more confusion, sacrificing our time, sacrificing our energy. And that sacrifice comes from faith. So it's important to keep reflecting on how to bring up the faith, revive it, maintain it, sustain it. In a few days I'll be uh, attending Lumpur Blian's funeral. It's an opportunity just to remind ourselves of the value of Sangha. You know, there'll be, no doubt there'll be thousands of monks come together to pay their last respects to a very good teacher. And you see the value of Sangha, all that support. Normally Sangha is spread around the world nowadays. But when they come together, it reminds you how powerful that good energy is. Your monks, you come together, even if you don't know a monk, just being a monk gives you something very strongly in common. And you can usually find a quick rapport and find that you've got many things in common because you have the faith and you have the practice of the Dhamma Vinaya. Out there in the world with lay people, it's not, not a sure thing because people have so many different standards of virtue, different opinions and views on things. You meet people where you can't be sure how friendly you can be with them or how long your connection with them will last because maybe they have totally different worldview than you. But when you meet Sangha, it's, it's different. There's usually a, a happiness when you meet fellow monks. Even if you hear stories of fellow monks suffering or their problems, it's still there's some bond, there's something in common that you can share with them. And that applies in the monastery as well. If we support each other as Sangha, and we help each other out with the different duties, responsibilities, we share information, advice, share the Dhamma with each other and just support each other in different ways through kindness, compassion. You know, this benefits us all and benefits the lay people who come here. So Magapuja is a time we Perhaps reflect on the, the qualities of the Sangha and renew our faith, our commitment to why we become a monk. Try and put effort into the practice. It's all about developing effort, developing mindfulness, and then contemplating the Dhamma. The aim is always to reduce suffering, not to increase our suffering not to increase our burden on ourselves or on others, but to lighten the load. The lighter our mind becomes, the less we attach, the lighter the mind becomes, the brighter the mind becomes. And when it's dark, it's because there's a strong attachment, clinging. When you cling on to your thoughts, feelings, or the body, you suffer. The more we can accept things just as they are, leave them be, as it were, 
with mindfulness, equanimity and wisdom, then the more peaceful we will be, the brighter the mind becomes. We have to accept these five candors as they are. We, we inherit them from the past. You know, they're the, the result of our past karma, you know, how your body is, your genes, the makeup of your body. Although we, our current karma affects it a little bit, generally it's, it's the result of our past karma. Feelings the same, all the pleasant, unpleasant feelings you're receiving in your daily experience, they're all coming back to you from your past karma. Sense consciousness perceptions the same. Mental formations is where we make fresh karma, even though they're also conditioned by the past. Using mental formations skillfully is developing the path, developing sina, samadhi, panya. That's where we can make a difference in the present moment, develop our fresh new good karma. Developing the right attitude, developing mindfulness and then treating your own candors with wisdom. Just treating the body with mindfulness and wisdom, treating feelings with mindfulness and wisdom. It's quite possible even in the midst of painful feelings, if you have a particular illness or injury, or just the pain that comes up as you're sitting or walking meditation. It's quite possible to be totally at peace with painful feelings when you deal with them or cope with them using mindfulness and wisdom. When we give up on mindfulness and wisdom, we go back to just reacting with our desire and our aversion, and then we're suffering again. As pain comes up, then we just want distraction to get away from it. We want some something to end it. If we can't end it, we just get caught into aversion and irritation. If we address it with mindfulness and wisdom, it becomes much more tolerable and maybe even doesn't bother us at all. And generally, that's the nature of these candors. When we mindful of the candors the way they are, mindful of them being without a self, beyond control, then the mind goes quiet. It can accept them, it can let them be. When we lose our mindfulness and we're not investigating, not treating them with wisdom, then we attach. So whatever happens becomes a source of suffering or anxiety, aversion, greed, and so on. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight and we can carry on meditating for a while. <laughs> 